Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. I want to talk with you today about dancing. Uh, you expected an introduction to our new sermon series, but no. I want to talk to you this morning about dancing first. I wonder who the first person you ever danced with was. Can you remember that? I think most of us can. You know, maybe a school dance or something like that, a community dance. For me, uh, her name was Kelly. It was the eighth grade dance, and we were all awkward and wearing braces. And um, it was the end of the year. I had on a Hawaiian shirt and khaki pants, and she had on sort of a, a, a blue Hawaiian dress. And um, what made her so interesting to me was she was uh, an expat from England. Right? She, she grew up in England and was living in the States, and so she had the accent. And, uh, you know, like, eighth grade, Brian was like, I kind of like the accent. And I guess that explains how I ended up being an Anglican. But, uh, but that night, right, that night, uh, it was my first time dancing with a girl, and it was awkward, right? What do you do? It's like, your hands go on her hips, her hands go on your shoulders. You just sort of do this thing, you know what I mean, right? Nothing else, you know, a little distance in the middle, keep room for the Holy Spirit, right? And you're dancing, and it's awkward. Um, and the song, by the way, was Drops of Jupiter by the band Train. Like, some of you know that song. And Well, anyway, it was about four minutes that first dance, and uh, we weren't good at it. But we got the gist of it, right? We listened to the music. We mirrored each other's footsteps. No dips, no swirls, or anything like that. But even at that young age, we kind of learned a little bit about dancing that night, right? That, that dancing is, is really about watching and understanding and keeping rhythm and responding to another person. That, that when you're dancing with someone, you're fundamentally focused on the other person and, and continually responding uh, to what they do and responding to their activity, what they're up to. Um, we created something kind of beautiful together, right? We created something beautiful that, that we both were emptying of ourselves, that we're putting ourselves on the back burner and really focusing on another person. And the result was something that you can't make by yourself. It was a work of art. Even if our version of that was sort of the kinetic version of a toddler's, you know, crayon doodles. <laughs> we were not the Rembrandts of the dance floor that night. Um, Beth will tell you I'm a much better dancer now. Um, I think I'm great at weddings and wedding receptions at the same time. But here's the thing, right? Uh, when you dance, when you get together with someone like that, there's something fundamentally others-focused. Right? There's something others-focused about that. We put our desires aside. We think mostly about the other person we're with. And it's true whether you're you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, you're gliding across the dance floor, whether you're at the square dance in the barn and you're listening to the caller's instructions about what you're going to do next. Whether it's the, the, the ballet, and they're on stage, and they're dancing with this beautifully manicured choreography. Uh, dancing, when you get to the heart of it, it's about working with other people and responding to other people and focusing that way. Um, so you put someone else's needs above your own while they do the same for you. I want you to keep this imagery of dancing in mind this morning as we 
hit the beginning of Mark's gospel. As we've said, right, we're going through the gospel of Mark this summer, and we're calling this series Learning from the Lion, right? The Lion, this historic art history image of Mark's gospel that you can find all over Western literature. Uh, There's different parts to it, right? We have our Monday email that goes out, and so earlier this week, many of you received sort of a guide to what to expect in these first 15 verses of Mark. Then on Wednesday, we sent out a podcast that helped understand a little bit about uh, how to read the Bible and looking for repeated words and why Mark really likes to use this word immediately. And um, if you listen to any of that, you know, we talked about things like, why are there wild animals? Why does Mark mention wild animals in the baptism? And why is it that um, uh, Jesus uh, is called the Son of God? And what does that mean? And what exactly does that term, why is it such a weighty term? Um, But uh, today, I want to drill down, and I just want to look at one little piece of our reading this morning. I want to look at the baptism of Jesus, because I want to explain to you why what's happening in that reading, that one part of our reading, the baptism of Jesus, um, it's it's a dance. There's a dance going on there, and it's a very important dance, because it's one that you're going to do one day. Um, It's one that you're going to do one day. So this is the part of the reading I want to focus in on. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now normally when people get baptized, (laughs) what do they do? They dry off, maybe there's cake, and they go home. Right? Like, that's what it is in our time. In that time, you know, people went out and they got baptized, and they, they were listening to John the Baptist and his revival ministry. But when Jesus gets baptized, nothing else is like it. Because what we discover is that there's this tear in the fabric of reality. And we find that there are two very important VIPs who have also decided to witness Jesus' baptism. Um, and that's God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, we have this moment where the fabric of reality, you know, the curtain about reality is torn back, and we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, coming together in this beautiful moment to mark the official beginning, as it were, of Jesus' earthly ministry. The three-in-one revealed right off the bat. And for those of you who know the church calendar, you'll know that today is Trinity Sunday. And uh, we don't always do Trinity Sunday, partly because it's complex and I don't like to preach about it because it's complex and it hurts your brain. It's true and it's good and it's right. And what a joy it is to start our Mark series with a conversation about the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. So let's go through the passage together here. What is it that we learn about God? What is it that we learn about Jesus' ministry as a result of this inbreaking of the heavens into reality? But what, is it, what is it we learn about God? What is it we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about ourselves from the fact that we have a, a vision of the Trinity right at the start of this gospel? Well, let's look at what Jesus does. First, we see the Son submitting to the Father. That's the first thing we see. Even though Jesus lived a life completely without sin, right? John's baptism was a baptism for the repentance of sins. So, but, but Jesus didn't sin, right? The, the scriptures make that clear. But he gets in line anyway. 
he gets in line and he is indeed baptized. Why might that be? Well, it's what God wanted. Think of it this way. You know, A, God the Father wants all humans to repent and be baptized. B, God the Son became human. So C, if God the Son wants to do God the Father's will as a human being, then the conclusion is he would be baptized. What is for everybody else there an act of contrition, an act of repentance, it's something different for Jesus. He doesn't have anything to repent about. But he does the Father's will anyway. He gets baptized. And so the baptism becomes a display of Jesus' total devotion to the Father's will. In Mark's gospel, we're going to see over and over again how Jesus, he submits to the Father's will. He, he goes forward with this plan um, at the expense of his own body, his own anguish, eventually, spoiler alert, his own life. <laughs> and so the first thing we see is the son submitting to the father. The next thing we see in response to this act of submission, we have a, a, a tangible, visible representation of the Holy Spirit coming from the father and descending on the son as if to draw attention to him. You know, this becomes the hallmark of, of the Holy Spirit's ministry. You know, the, some people jokingly call the Holy Spirit the, the shy member of the Trinity. Um, but I think J.I. Packer had a better description. Uh, he described the ministry of the Holy Spirit like, like a floodlight or a spotlight. That oftentimes the work of the Holy Spirit, as we um, see the Holy Spirit work in scriptures, is to draw attention to something else while not drawing attention uh, to himself. Now, I wonder um, you know, if you've seen a spotlight or a floodlight, right? The thing about a spotlight or a floodlight is it illumines something else, but it doesn't want you to notice it, right? Think of when you were at a play recently, the spotlight on the balcony, right? When the spotlight turns on and an actor is illuminated, you don't automatically turn around and go, oh, hey, there's a spotlight up there. Oh, very cool. You look at what has been illuminated. And so in our reading today, the Holy Spirit descends and rests upon Jesus. It's a fulfillment of another prophecy in Isaiah, not the one in our reading today. It's a fulfillment of another prophecy that the Messiah of God will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see happening in the reading. The Father sends down the Holy Spirit from heaven who falls uniquely onto the Son who is doing his Father's will. Then, in our reading, we get the voice of the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Notice here that this word comes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Jesus really hasn't done anything yet. Uh, the Father takes so much pleasure and pride in his Son. He's pleased with his Son, even though nothing has been really done to earn that pleasure. There's no sort of the list, the checklist of things that has to happen uh, for the redemption of the world. It's still pretty long, and it's basically unchecked at this point. And God the Father, even then, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I wonder if you've ever been loved like that apart from your works. You know how powerful that is, right? If you have this sort of, this is an unbridled power to love someone unconditionally, right? It's unconditional love like this is, is what makes happy marriages. It makes well-adjusted children. It's what causes adult children to still call their parents when they're in their 40s and 50s. It's, it's the only context, unconditional love. It's the only context where you can have a conversation about politics and not want to sort of ring each other out, right? Um, there's a sense here when, when you have unconditional love, um, as the source of, of your being, 
and as your primary motivator. Unconditional love becomes the thing um, that, that can make possible so many other expressions of love in the world. If we put a condition on our affections, right? Well, it's like, I will love you, but only if dot, 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 If you do that, it's not love anymore. It's a contract, right? I will treat you with affection if you also do this, that, or the other, right? If you get good grades, child, then I will love you, all right? Or um, if, you, um, you know, if you do this, if I, I will do that. Um, if you, my friend, come with me to the concert this Friday, then I will love you forever. You know, those are the sort of things where we say love. It's not love. It's a contract. <clears throat> love only exists when it is truly unconditional. And we see in our reading today that the Father's love is unconditional. And finally, being the ever-submitting and ever-obedient son that he is, full of his Father's love... And at the Holy Spirit's direction, Jesus takes, uh, takes his leave after his baptism and departs to the wilderness as part of, to, to do what is next in his ministry ahead. So let's put this together, this, this Trinitarian activity. The Son does the Father's will. The Father sends the Spirit from heaven to fall on the Son and bring attention to him. The Father declares his love for his Son before the Son has done anything. The Son follows the Spirit as he is led into the wilderness. I want you to to recognize this self-denying love that's at play here. Do you see how all the members of the Trinity, right, in this great three-in-one, one-in-three mystery, they they point towards each other. They don't point towards themselves, right? Um, The Son loves the Father and obeys his will. The Father sends a Spirit to be a spotlight for the Son, Uh, And then the son heeds the the call of the spirit to go into the wilderness, and the father declares his good pleasure to the son, right? There's this back and forth that's going on from one to the other. Um, There's this shifting focus in in the the Trinity, in the, the heart of the Trinity, where the father says, hey, have you seen my wonderful son that I unconditionally love? And the son says, hey... I love my father, and I love him and, and to death, and I, I really love him so much I want to do his will and nothing else. And the spirit says, have you met the father and, uh, the, uh, who loves his son so much, and, and, and have you met the son who um, is doing the father's will? So, so there's this sort of pointing to each other, this self-emptying love that goes from to, but also that it becomes a, a thing where they receive it from other people. And so it's just back and forth and all around uh, the love going across the members of the Trinity. And again, in this great three-in-one and one-in-three mystery, um, Mark, wants to, just, just, <clears throat> Mark wants us to see a mutual trust and a mutual love and affection between the Father, the Son, that is Holy Spirit, that is outward focused, even though they are three in one. As one gives, another receives. As another gives, another receives. Each is infinitely giving and also infinitely receiving. Back and forth, rhythmically, our triune God works in this perfect love and connection that I think we might even be able to call a a dance. A a dance, as it were, right? Um, Using this dance imagery, Christians have been doing this for a very long time, to talk about the nature of love and how God loves each other. Um, The early church fathers used a word for it, it's a very fancy theological word. If you remember it next week, I'll give you a dollar. Perichoresis. <laughs> Perichoresis. The Greek is this word that means sort of thing like a going around. And the imagery here is that the, the Trinity is in this sort of three-in-one heavenly waltz of unconditional self-giving love. 
The Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards concluded that he, he saw this dynamic of, of, of the father loving the son and the son loving the father and the spirit pointing to the father and the son and their love and this sort of back and forth and they're going around each other and, and this sort of dynamic shifting love. And, and he said, you know what that means? If that's true, if that's what the Trinity really is like, then God must be infinitely happy, Jonathan Edwards said, because um, he's both the giver of a self-emptying love, and he is the receiver of someone else's self-emptying love. Um, he can give everything, but he's at want for nothing because he's received it from something, someone else. Um, C.S. Lewis famously described it as this dance, and he, he, he says, um, the universe was pulsating um, with this dance. That, that, that sort of unconditional love explodes into the universe from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the scholar and seminary president D.A. Carson says that by understanding the Trinity in this way, we understand how God can be others-oriented. Um, because God, it's not as if God was just sort of hanging around sort of metaphysically by himself for eternity and decided to create us. Um, that God was indeed other-oriented from the beginning of time. And that's why when he creates the world, he reaches out to us and says, I want to be in relationship with you because I care about others. And so, so you have this vision here of this dance, this self-giving, unconditional love. And, and we, in many ways, were created to join in that dance. Um, the purpose of our creation, say, uh, says the scriptures and the theologians, is to be in relationship with this unconditionally loving, self-giving God. To be the recipients of this is why we were created, and to join in this dance. And that inspires us, of course, to do the same thing. We then become agents of, of self-emptying, unconditional love uh, to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then also to our neighbors. That was the original vision. But there is a problem, and it's a problem that can be best explained by the 90s new wave punk rocker, Billy Idol. Uh, yes, we're talking about Billy Idol this morning because the story goes that Billy Idol was at a rock show in 1979 in Tokyo, Japan with his old band, Gen X. Some of you are like, I feel so seen right now, and others of you are like, what is he talking about? But I'm, I'm, <laughs> follow me for a second here because Billy Idol, the rock musician, he's playing a show, and the venue is really unique um, because the venue had walls that were mirrors, okay? And so you could, you know, it looked bigger, they had mirrored walls, but Billy Idol noticed something in the middle of his performance. He looked up, and as he's playing and singing, he looked out. And there was a fad in Japan at the time where people would go to the mirrors, and they would dance by themselves in front of the mirrors. Isn't that interesting? They would come together, right, and they would oppose their reflection in the mirror, and they'd make eye contact with them, and they would begin to dance in such a way, like to, 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 to dance in the mirror. Right? And Billy Idol was like, this is so strange, it's so different. He found it so compelling, he ended up writing a song about it. And it's probably the only Billy Idol song you know that you didn't know that you know. And it's called Dancing With Myself. And the whole song is about how on the one hand it feels freeing, right? Because you're not beholden to anyone else. You're free, you're like I've got nothing to lose, I've got nothing to prove, I'm dancing with myself. But at the end of the song you realize there's a bitter sweetness to it. Because the reason he's really dancing with himself is because he got rejected by his love interest. And he would give up all that freedom to dance with himself if he could just be actually in communication and love and, and, and in a relationship with the woman he loves. Um, so that's Billy Idol's take on this whole thing, because I, I love this image. 
um, a bunch of people standing in front of mirrors dancing with themselves. It's such a great um, image. It's a facsimile of what sin actually does to the human heart, isn't it? Right? This is a powerful image of self-interest, of, of sort of narcissism and, and disconnection. Using this imagery, I, I think we might talk about the gospel in this way. Christianity teaches us that in our own vanity, um, when God offers us the opportunity to join the unconditional loving dance of the Trinity, we prefer to dance with our own reflections in the mirror instead. Instead of joining in God's infinite and unconditional dance of love, um, instead of being the people that God made us to be, these sort of self-giving, self-emptying, unconditionally loving people, we've done the opposite. We have prioritized our own needs before anyone else's. Um, We've only loved others for what they could do for us in a contractual and conditional way. Again, this is what the Bible calls sin, a self-centered delusion that we are all we need and that the world exists to serve us and not the other way around, right? Who needs the dance partner? Who needs the square dance caller or the DJ? Who needs other people? Who needs God? There's a record player and a mirror on hand. I can do just fine on my own. But at the end of the reading today, after Jesus has received the Father's blessing, after he has resisted Satan's temptations, Jesus begins his preaching ministry with an invitation. Repent and believe in the gospel. Imagine, as it were, as if the Son of God has stepped between us and our opposed mirror image. Imagine if the Son of God got in the way between us and that thing which we were so obsessed with as we danced in the mirror. And he said, listen, there's a better dance. Come, dance with me. The invitation that Jesus gives in our reading is is the the image of someone who comes and pulls us out of our mirror dance and our self-interest and our, our, our curved inner and ourselves attitude and drags us back into the waltz of this self-emptying, unconditional love that we were designed to do from day one. He's asking us, he's asking you, to try a new dance, one that requires the same mutual self-denying connection that two eighth graders felt when they were dancing together for the first time, but this time the dance partner is God himself. And so we discover in the introduction to Mark's gospel, in these first few verses, is that the triune God of the universe has room on his dance card. He wants your name on it. That's the vision of heaven that we have. And as we continue to go through Mark's gospel with this moment of the Trinity in our, in our, our minds, and stick a pen in it, by the way, because it comes very important later on in Mark's gospel, but this vision of the Trinity in our hearts and in our minds, um, the unconditional self-emptying love of God The Gospel of Mark is going to show you exactly what kind of self-emptying, self-denying, other-centered sacrifice it's going to make to make this dance happen. Jesus will leave it all on the dance floor by the end of the Gospel, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So on this Trinity Sunday, then, as we start our summer dive into the Gospel of Mark, um, let's put on our dancing shoes. Leave your mirror and your reflection behind and let someone else take the lead for a change. God is inviting you to be what you are originally created to be, a fellow dancer in the great cosmic waltz of unconditional and self-emptying love. And to hear Jesus say it in our reading today, um, get your dancing shoes on, because the music's starting soon. In Jesus' name, amen.
Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.